We're studying the book of Second Chronicles, moving close to the end. We come now to chapter 34. We'll begin our study at verse 19, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 33. Second Chronicles 34, verses 19 to 33. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdom, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who you sent to me. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul and to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin to join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers." And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Father in heaven, we thank you for this record of ancient events that are so relevant to us. We pray now that we would be taught, that we would take the place of Josiah, that with a tender heart we would seek and find your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In 1638, the leaders of the Scottish church met in Greyfriars Churchyard to seal a national covenant for their realm. 
And their purpose was to put in writing their intention to honor the Lord through faithfulness to his word. And their inspiration came in part by the example set in this chapter by Judas King Josiah when he responded to the recovery of God's word by leading his people to renew covenant with God. The Scottish National Covenant was met with great enthusiasm by the people because they'd been hearing God's word preached. They had studied scripture for themselves. They wanted their nation to stand firmly on the Bible and through faith in Christ. It involved not merely a religious establishment imposed upon the people, but it reflected the widespread spiritual awakening that had happened in the land. Now, it's interesting that a decade before that took place, 1628, a Puritan minister named Richard Sibbs published a series of sermons that were based on King Josiah's sterling example in the Old Testament. And its first chapter from our passage was titled, The Tender Heart. And in that chapter, Sibbs noted that along with formal statements and covenants and doctrinal creeds, God's people must also have a heart that is tender, that is humble and pliable before the Lord. Michael Reeves, in the preface of the republishing of that book, understood that true reformation, whether reformation in Josiah's day, in Richard Sibbs' days, or in our day, must always begin in the heart with love for Christ. Well, the chronicler's conclusion to this episode in which God's book of the covenant was discovered having been lost for so many years suggests, I think, some skepticism about public covenants like the one enforced by King Josiah unless the people are joined to the king in a true heartfelt return to the Lord. What he highlights at the end of 2 Chronicles 34 is the power of a tender heart. That's what made the difference. Not merely the covenant, but the tender heart humbled before God and his word. Josiah's covenant renewal was sincere and it was outwardly effective while he lived. But it was his tender heart that God praised. So that Josiah's humble contrition for the nation's sin secured mercy for himself and forestalled the wrath of God's judgment for a generation. Richard Sibbs comments, where there is a broken heart, there shall be freedom from judgment because where tenderness of heart is, their mercy shall follow. Well, Second Chronicles 34, 14 to 18 tells us how Israel's high priest, Hilkiah, discovered what was almost certainly the book of Deuteronomy. And he did so while the workmen, while he was involved in the restoration of the temple building in Jerusalem. And before long, God's lost word was brought to Josiah the king and it was read. And Josiah's response reveals the high degree of spiritual vitality. There's a reason why at the beginning of this chapter he receives the accolade that he walked in the ways of David, his father. Verse 2, he was a spiritually alive man. And so we're told of his response to the reading of God's word, the book of Deuteronomy in verse 19, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Now imagine reading the Bible to someone, or maybe if you're a minister, preaching, and people start tearing their clothing, and they have an anguished look on their face. You saw all that would indicate the kind of deep distress with which Josiah heard not only the requirements of God's law, 
but also the curses pronounced on those who violated it. Because this is what he would have heard, read from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 15 to 19. This is just a portion of a longer section of curses. And God says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, this is Moses speaking at that time, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. And again, that's just the beginning of the curses of Deuteronomy 28 for the breaking of God's covenant. Now, Andrew Stewart notes there's two ways in which people can respond to the reading and preaching of God's word. When the Bible teaches us uncomfortable truths, one strategy is evasion. As Stuart writes, we try to reason to ourselves. There must be some mistake here. We plead, be reasonable. These idol worshipers couldn't be completely wrong. Some of them were very sincere people, so on and so forth. And we rationalize. And the whole point is to render, to dismiss or argue the Bible's actual teaching into irrelevance. Why? So that we don't have to change. So that we may permit ourselves to go on as we previously has done. That is not a very good strategy, but it's one frequently used. The strategy of evasion when God's word is preached. Stuart recommends, instead of evasion, for us to respond the way that Josiah did in submission. We realize that the Bible is God's own word. It is his authoritative revelation. And so we humble ourselves so that we repent of our errors. We are willing to change directions in accordance with Holy Scriptures. Stuart comments, many times it would be easier just to lose the Bible. That's what Judah had done. And pretend that we've not heard what is taught in it. But for the Christian, that option is not open. Now, Josiah's actions were dramatic. It was part and parcel of the piety of the Old Testament. But his response to the critique, to the, even the curses pronounced by God's word, should be replicated in our humble, penitent response to the corrective teaching of Holy Scripture. Now, one of the Bible's main purposes, it turns out, is to bring sinners into a repentant frame of mind. Do you realize that's one of the Bible's chief purposes? People think, well, the Bible's purpose is to tell me how to live. Well, the Bible will tell you how to live, but the problem is that you're a sinner with a corrupt nature. And so the first need is for you to be shown this and to bring you into a repentant frame of mind. I suppose we'd like to think that we read the Bible, it's going to tell us how great we are. It's going to say pretty much what we already believe. That's what people want. Many people think that's what the Bible says. But the problem is that the human race, that includes us, is fallen in sin and depravity. So the first task of Scripture is to persuade us of the error of our ways, worse than that, of our guilt before the holy God, and therefore of our need of the Savior God has provided in his Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 verse 12 teaches that the word of God is living and active, piercing us like a sharp sword. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why we need to employ the Bible in our own lives. We need to commend it to the lives of others. Cyril Barber writes that God's word has such power that when it is received with an open mind, it immediately convinces us of our unworthiness. 
And this is designed to lead us to confess our sins to the Lord and amend our ways. I suppose other people would have thought Josiah was an extraordinarily godly person. But he was, in fact, a sinner before God. And he shows his piety that when God's lost book was read, he he repented himself for the sins of the nation, for the wrath that their fathers had deserved in penitent anguish. Now, that's one way we should respond to God's word. How else should we respond when we learn from God's word as we will? That we are sinners and that our sins have brought us under God's terrible judgment. Well, Josiah expressed his realization. He knew that was true. Look at verse 21. He, heard, he read the words of the book that has been found, that great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to the, all that is written in the book. It wasn't just what the fathers had done, but what they taught them and the example they'd followed. And his kingdom was, a, was in a deplorable situation before God. Of course, we've been studying Jeremiah in the morning. We've seen detailed expositions of this. So here's the question, what hope could Josiah find and where would he find it? Well, his answer was to seek further information in God's word. Having been aggrieved by the law and God's judgment, the law his people had transgressed, Josiah sought for God's gospel message that shows mercy to sinners. And to this end, he commanded his servants to seek out a nearby prophetess in Jerusalem to inquire for a word of hope that she might give. Verses 20 and 21, the king commanded Hilkiah, Achiham, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the son of the secretary, Asiah, the king's servant, saying, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who were left in Israel and Judah. Now, unlike Josiah, whose biblical library was, had suffered, as we've seen, during the wickedness of the reign of so many kings before him, you and I have the benefit of the completed canon. We have the finished Bible and the whole of its message. And therefore, if you should read in God's word or if you should hear it preached that you are a guilty sinner under God's holy wrath, what you should do is continue reading your Bible because there you will discover the soul comforting message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By consulting God's finished word, you will learn that God in his grace sent his son to offer his own life as a sacrifice for sin. You will discover in God's word of God in his grace that through faith in Jesus you may be forgiven, that you may be justified, sinner though you are, through faith alone in Christ. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And this good news will alleviate our distress. It will tell us, the words of John 3.16, that God so loves the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you, like Josiah, have at least figuratively torn your garments, if you have been aggrieved deeply, not only for the punishment of your sins, but for the sinfulness of your sins, you will find new garments provided for you by God's grace, the clean garments of Christ's imputed righteousness offered to you freely as God's gift of mercy through the saving work of his son. You, like Josiah then, will be able to tell others the wonderful good news you will share with people you know 
the saving message of salvation through faith in the atoning blood of Christ. In the words of Isaiah 53, 6, you will say, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, Josiah did not, con- did not possess a complete Bible. And so he sent his servants to consult a person who can tell him God's word. And the chronicle tells us of, of Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. Now, we do not know why Josiah sent his servants to her and not to other prophets. He might have had the prophet Habakkuk nearby. Uh, recently, he may not have known it, but recently that teenager in the town of Anathoth, Jeremiah, had been called by the Lord right around this time, probably a little beforehand. Jeremiah had received his commission as a prophet. It may be because of her proximity. We're told that she was right around the corner in the second quarter of Jerusalem. Now, perhaps he had previously interacted with Huldah. Maybe he'd been pressed by how God had used her to speak his word. Now, it's unusual in the Old Testament for women to be identified as prophets, prophetesses, but it's not unheard of. The New Testament clearly teaches male leadership in the church, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14, 3, to 1, 6, 3 1 to 6. And yet Philip Ryken is right to remind us that godly women like Hulda, maybe not exactly like her, but... Godly women will often have valuable insight regarding the Bible. Riken says that Huldah is a reminder that godly women have something to teach us. When a woman speaks God's truth, a wise man will listen to what she says. Now, this particular wise woman was an actual prophetess, and she revealed her divine commission by anticipating Josiah's representatives. She had a ready-made message for the Lord on their arrival from the Lord. And we're told they spoke to her of the, to that effect. They told her of Josiah's reaction, of his desire to inquire of the Lord. And she replied to them, verse 23, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord. Now that's the hallmark of a true prophet in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. Not just that they say it, but that it's true. Because prophecy is God's own revelation of truth, just as scripture is today. Well, Huldah began by confirming the message that Josiah had read in Deuteronomy. Look at verse 24. Here's her message. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. Now, here's another hallmark of biblical truth. God's word always confirms in one place what it declares in another If Josiah's messengers were hoping that Huldah, the prophetess, would contradict the rediscovered book of the covenant, Deuteronomy, they were sadly mistaken. And the same is true for us. If we foolishly and vainly hope that the severe condemnations found in the Old Testament are going to be mitigated in the New Testament, they are not. If anything, the teaching of Jesus amplifies the dire threats of eternal judgment that are previously found in the prophets. So far from alleviating Josiah's anguish over God's curse for sin, Huldah confirms the certainty of this looming judgment. In fact, her reply to Josiah's official is is the Bible's first confirmation that the Lord now had firmly resolved to destroy Josiah's kingdom and its holy city, Jerusalem. Now, the reason why God was so determined to bring judgment like this 
The judgment that Josiah feared was the severity of the people's apostasy during the reign of his grandfather, Judah's king, Manasseh. Huldah explains, verse 25, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Now, all she's doing is she's bringing into her own time with a a divinely inspired message, the very thing that was warned by Moses so long before. Moses said, if you are not turned to me, God said through Moses, if you are not turned to me, but you walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you. I will strike you sevenfold for your sins. I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. Leviticus 26, 24 to 25. Well, the kingdom that Josiah ruled had broken God's covenant. So in keeping with his word, the Lord soon would visit his vengeful judgment upon them. Now, so far, Josiah does not seem to have been rewarded by his inquiry of God's word, to God's word. He's hoping for a good word. And so far, all he's been told is, yes, that's what the Bible says. And by the way, I'm confirming it upon this people soon. But Huldah went on and she had a message for the king himself in which God spoke of mercy in response to Josiah's humility. Verses 26 and 27 But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding your words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Now, it was this message from the Lord to Josiah that motivated Richard Sibbs to publish that wonderful book. The book's actually called Josiah's Reformation. It highlights the benefits of this tender heart. And Sibbs realized that whenever a people have discovered their sin before the Lord and the Bible's promises of punishment on those sins, their first priority always should be to come humbly before God. In fact, Sibs further noted that the first sign that God intends to show mercy to sinners is that he works in them by his spirit, the tender heart displayed by Josiah. Sibs writes, where God intends to do any good, he first works in them a gracious disposition. Now, what exactly did Hulda mean when she spoke of Josiah's tender heart? Well, Sibs answers this question by saying that such a heart first is sensible, by which he means that it's spiritually awake to the truth of God's word. Josiah does not listen to the reading of Deuteronomy the way that his son, Jehoiakim, when we get to Jeremiah 36, we'll see what happens when someone doesn't have a tender heart. They're not sensible. And Jeremiah's word is read to Jehoiakim, and he's, he's cynical, he's callous, he has it cut into pieces, he throws it into the fire. He was insensible that this is the word of God. The tender heart is sensible that this is God speaking and its implications are significant. Secondly, Sibs notes, a tender heart is pliable before the Lord's instruction. He contrasts the pliable heart to a wall against which a stone is thrown and it makes no impression. The pliable heart is impacted by the message that God speaks. It's being influenced The message is getting through. And then thirdly, the tender heart is yielding to the message of Scripture. 
It is sensible. It is pliable. It is yielding. Sibs writes, a tender heart, so soon as the word is spoken, yields to it. It quakes at the threats. It obeys the precepts. It melts at the promises. And the promises sweeten the heart. Well, such a tender heart is a sign that God intends to show mercy to a sinner. Sivs notes that God uses his word as a hammer to break and the fire to melt the hardened heart and make it tender. And then the Lord presents the atoning mercy of his son, the compassionate love shown by Jesus to sinners. And that love, when we see Jesus out of love for us, dying for our sins on the cross, that is the final solvent that melts and molds the tender heart. Sib says, tenderness of heart is wrought by an apprehension of the tenderness and love of Christ. A soft heart is made soft by the blood of Jesus. Well, Huldah, the prophetess, described Josiah's tender heart, saying, verse 27, you humbled yourself before God. So that's a sort of synonym here. It's humility before God. And she ascribes this humility to God's answer uh, as the the result of of Josiah's plea. Verse 27, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Now here we discover a biblical secret to efficacy in prayer. People say, what will make my prayers work? What will give strength and power? What will cause God? Well, the, the main answer is God's own grace. The main answer is his promises you. The main answer is that God's, God is your father if you are in Jesus Christ, his son. But let's not fail to note what here is said. When people come before God seeking his blessings in a spirit of pride and arrogance, arrogance, their humbled heart should not expect entrance into the Lord's mercy. Instead, it is the humble prayer from the tender heart that finds a welcome in God's compassion. If we should come to God demanding favor, arrogantly insisting on our merits, our rights to his bounty, I have done this, I am that, I deserve your answer. You are wrong not to answer me. Well, we should not, we have no reason from the Bible at least to expect God's willingness to help and to save. I often think of C.S. Lewis. He commented that whenever we come to God feeling we are good, that's how he puts it, we feel that we are good, above all that we are better than someone else, we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. Pride is not only the, the anti-Christ way of, of, of thinking and feeling, it's the anti-prayer way of coming before the Lord. No, it's the heart that's been touched by God and that opens the door to his favor, the heart that is humble, that confesses its sin, that renounces any and all claim to merit, that pleads only God's compassionate nature together with his promise. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, he says, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. God promises that he will answer the plea of the tender heart. Now Josiah's tender heart receives God's answer and it is a message of mercy for his own life. Look at verse 28. 
Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And so God's threatened judgment would not occur during the lifetime of godly, tender-hearted Josiah. His humble faith, therefore, received the blessing of knowing that his life was in God's hand. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You know, it's true of all of us that our lives are in God's hands. Our death will occur in God's timing. And in, in Josiah's case, it would be God's timing in a way that spared him the terrors of judgment. Richard Sibbs comments, God has appointed a certain time of our being here in this world. This should tie us to him in obedience and to die, that we will die in hope and faith. Because when we die, we are here told that we are gathered to our fathers. We go to better company and a better place than we leave behind. Well, armed with this message from God, from the prophetess, Josiah's servants returned to the king. He had sought mercy from the Lord, and he found it. Just as Jesus would say is true of all who come before the Lord, confessing their sin with a tender heart, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. John 5, 24. Well, to Josiah's further credit, he received the message of God's mercy when they came back and reported to him. He received this noteworthy message, not with smug indifference regarding the looming judgment over his nation, but with a heart that having been tender towards God, see, this is how it works. His heart was tender towards God. It therefore was tender towards the spiritual predicament of others. And Josiah would use the remaining years of his life seeking biblical reformation of his nation. Even as he presented his people with God's word, he sought that their hearts also would be tender before the Lord. Philip Ryken comments on Josiah's example for us. He says that having been saved, we should live for God as well as we can, seeking the spiritual reformation of the church and the gospel reformation of society. Well, we are told in the final verses of this chapter of how Josiah, upon getting this news, he gathered all the leaders of his kingdom We see this in verse 29. The king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. But that wasn't all that was. All the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then he gathered the religious clergy, the priests and the Levites. In fact, all the people, great and small. This is what he did. And then what did he do for them? He did for them what had been done for him. He read to them the word of God. That's how he got his tender heart by the reading of the word of God. And he assembles the entire nation or as much as he could in that city. He read to them from God's book. What a wonderful ministry that is. J.A. Thompson comments that the word of God that we see here is meant for everyone. It's not merely for the leaders only. The word of God is meant for everyone. It's not to be locked up in churches. It's not to be hidden behind pulpits. It's not to be confined to professors' offices. What a word this is for the mothers and fathers of our church. Parents who desire their children to be saved, to have not a hard heart, not not a heart that's carried away by the word, but a heart that's tender before God. What should be their priority? To do what Josiah did, to read them the Bible. 
The children of our church should, when they grow up, they should have memories of their mother's voice and their father's voice, reading them faithfully and fervently and lovingly the words of the Bible of God. And then they should bring those children to a church where the word of God is faithfully and powerfully preached. It is God's word that conveys the saving power to take away the heart of stone and mold it so as to be tender in the confession of sin and the desire for God's mercy. I often think of Ezekiel and Jeremiah's contemporary, and he desired the exiles to have a tender heart, and God showed him a vision for how this would happen. He brought him to the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel 37, the worst kind of situation. It was a picture not only of spiritual death, but of decomposition, dried bones. What is he to do? What are you to do? When, what, are, what am I to do, we the church to do, when we face hardened hearts? God said, prophesy, son of man, preach the word. And he began preaching God's word to the valley of dry bones. And then he saw a wind blowing. It was the Holy Spirit. And God's spirit answering his word gave power of life. And they rose together and worshiped the Lord. Well, Josiah followed the reading of God's word by calling his people to renew themselves in a covenant before the Lord. That's what we read in verse 31. The king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord. Now, he, we do not have the right to construct covenants before God. We do not make the terms of our relationship to the Lord. What he's doing is he's recommitting to the people to the covenant, the old covenant in this case, the Mosaic covenant that God had made with them. And he's calling the people to reaffirm. And you'll see this happen at various key moments throughout the history of the Old Testament. Godly leaders were used by God and they brought reformation. In many cases, they brought salvation. And then they brought the people together. You think of Joshua As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now you choose this day how you will respond. He called the people to covenant before the Lord. This is what Josiah did. Now God's covenant proclaims both promises and warnings to the people. And Josiah sought to impress upon the collective consciousness of the nation the the solemnity of their relationship to God. Oh, the promises of blessing. And yes, the dire warnings of solemn judgment. He himself, verse 31, committed to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in his book. What a, what do you see why God's people have loved Josiah and his memory for so long? He's the king high on his throne and he stands before the people with a tender heart and he says, I, I commit to you that I, by God's grace, I, I, I will follow the Lord. I will walk in his ways. Again, setting an example uh, for all spiritual leaders. And he urged them to do the same. Then he made all who were present in Judah and in Benjamin to join it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Now, I will confess to you that there is a troubling statement in verse 32, and it's this, that he made them do it. And that way of putting it by the chronicler does comport with the historical record. If you read Kings and Chronicles, you get the impression, because it's focused on the leadership, that these were times of widespread reformation. But we've been studying the book of Jeremiah, taking place at the same time, and we discover something else. Uh, that the people, did, they, they, were, they were compelled by the authority, by the power of the king. They went along with him outwardly. 
but they did not, in fact, render tender hearts before the Lord. Well, still, Josiah did all that he could. He, verse 33, he took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel. He made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days, they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of his father. The problem was that Josiah's death arrived and his death brought their ruin. And the people had not followed in the tender heart he had brought before the Lord. Matthew Henry writes, Josiah was sincere in what he did, but the generality of the people were averse to it, and they hankered still after their idols, so that the Reformation, so well designed and prosecuted by the king, had little or no effect upon the people. It is with reluctancy that they parted from their idols. Still they were joined to them in heart, and they wished for them again. Well, the subsequent record of Scripture shows that that is true, And Josiah's death brought their ruin. Well, let me conclude tonight by pointing out that the ancient kingdom of Judah was in fact ruined by Josiah's death. But when the true and greater king from his own line came to God's people, God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death, his people were saved. And it's in this way that biblical heroes like Josiah, they point us for all of their greatness, which is a mark of God's grace in their lives, but they point us to our need for a greater king with greater power who could do what Josiah so desired but could not himself accomplish. Josiah could not do two things. He could not cleanse the people of the guilt of their sins and he could not change their hearts his tender heart he could not communicate to them and he points to the lord jesus christ who is able to do them both it is by his death that his people are saved jesus said i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep as the bible is read before you and preached to you before you tonight It is God who's calling you to enter into covenant, your own personal covenant, as well as the church's covenant with him in faith. My friend, it must be a covenant that is made through faith in Jesus Christ because his blood and his blood alone will forgive you of your sins. He lays down his life for those who believe and he atones for all of our sins. And then he can do what no pastor, no parent, no Josiah can do. He can change the heart. I think of how Jesus put it in John 10, 27 to 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. If you, through God's word, will see, oh, I am a sinner and you inwardly would tear the clothing of your heart. Where, oh, where can I find someone to deliver me from the wrath of God that I deserve, he will direct you to Jesus Christ, his son. And as you hear his voice and you follow him, he will give you eternal life. He will take away the guilt of all your sin and he will give you a new heart. Jesus says they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. Father in heaven, we thank you for Josiah. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is to read of a man like that in a time like his. But Father, it is not Josiah who can save us. And we see and we've learned through Jeremiah of the failure of all of his efforts. 
Well, Father, as we heard this morning from Jeremiah 31, thank you that you will keep your promises. You have a new covenant. You will write your law upon our hearts. You forgive us of our sins through the blood of Jesus. And by your spirit, you give us the tender heart. Oh, Lord, should, would, should, would you enable us to desire this? Oh, Lord, cause us prayerfully to seek that we might have a tender heart that is sensible and pliable and yielding to your word. Because then, Lord, we know you will delight to hear us when we pray. And you will say to us what Jesus said, I will give you eternal life and you will never perish. We pray in his name. Amen.